Hi again, this is Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. In this episode, I sat down with professional mariner John Gandy. John Gandy had a military and civilian maritime career, and now, when he's not sailing, spends his time restoring old vessels and keeping history alive. In this interview, John discusses in detail little-known vessel handling techniques, as well as interesting little-known navigational aid knowledge. Our conversation also delves into his career, history, sailor superstition, torpedoes, cruise missiles, our vessel, the A.J. Mirwald, and other topics. I hope you enjoy this interview with a very literate and professional mariner, John Gandy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. Uh, my name is Captain Johan, and I am here with Captain John Gandy. Captain John Gandy, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be doing it. <laughs> so, John and I, we just took the A.J. Mirwald all the way from uh, was it Point Pleasant, New Jersey, all the way up here, and we're we're bound for Maine, but we're doing a stop over in Plymouth due to the weather. So I thought it'd be a great time to interview some of the incredible shipmates, I old shipmates I've had and new shipmates I'm meeting. And uh, John here has tremendous experience and some incredible stories, and he's going to hopefully share that with us. So John, a little bit about your background. What, what was your first boat experience you ever had? What, what got you hooked? Playing in a rowboat on a lake, pushing it around with an old oar and uh, just messing around with it. Uh, there was a place that uh, was a cottage on the lake and a neighbor owned it and sometimes would take me with him when he was going up there he had you know just to check on the place the last thing my dad would say to me when we were getting in the car uh, to go up there was now don't go near the water <laughs> and well that never happened that was one of the few times I think I just totally disobeyed my parents and uh, couldn't resist it so I, I don't know I was just hooked right from there. Very neat. And so you said you were in Sea Scouts, is that correct? Yeah, I was in Sea Scouts in high school. Um, our skipper was a World War II veteran from um, um, uh, Kings Point, graduated Kings Point during the war, went to sea on merchant ships, uh, Merman's convoy runs through German U-boats and stuff. Great guy, great leader. And um, so I was able to really learn a heck of a lot from him. Um, in oh, handling boats and, and stuff. We had an 83-foot former Coast Guard cutter, twin screw, and um, so I learned, you know, how to handle a twin screw boat of that size uh, and uh, went on from there. Yeah, very neat. And so at that, uh, that starting point took you to the Navy, is that right, directly? Yeah, I went uh, Navy, went to college, and was in the Navy ROTC, and uh, got a commission then when I graduated. Um, that was in 1967. I hate to say that because it reveals maybe how old I am, but we <laughs> won't go there. Um, did 13 years active duty in the Navy. Uh, decided I needed a change, so the, Navy, or the Coast Guard let me sit for an original second mate's license based on Navy sea time which I did, and uh, left active duty and got a job on a tanker, was my first uh, merchant marine job, and um, as a third mate. Uh, stayed in the Navy Reserve for another 17 years while I was going to see merchant marine. Okay, and now on the side, you 
sail tall ships. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, any chance I get to be on the water is uh, is great. Uh, sometimes, in fact, while I was going to sea, I had uh, an oyster boat, fifty foot little oyster boat, on the Morris River, and uh, so I'd go to sea for four months. And when I came home for four months, what I did for recreation was run my oyster boat, go out and dredge <laughs> oysters and and all that stuff. Yeah, we got an old expression on tall ships. Uh, what do tall ship sailors do on their days off? They go sail on other boats. So yeah, that's true. That's about right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, John, this morning we were we were getting underway. We were uh, weighing anchor. And you you're telling me how you had a trick when, when you come into dock sometimes, you'll, you'll lower the anchor just so that it's not digging in, but it's dragging along the bottom. And that's a, that enables you to better maneuver as you're coming into dock. Can you kind of maybe explain that? I know it's hard to do just orally, but maybe you can explain that or tell the story about the time that saved you when you're rounding a very tight corner. Yeah, uh, and at that point, the story I'm going to tell, I had already uh, actually been teaching ship handling uh, in my off-ship off time um, at a school in Florida. I had also done some ship handling training in the Navy at a Navy school that, that they had in teaching junior officers ship handling. Uh, but basically what it is, if you have some wind, like especially blowing you off the dock and you're trying to make an approach uh, to the dock to tie up, you can. it's good if you have an anchor windlass that you can walk the anchor out instead of just dropping it. But even if you're just dropping it, you figure out the depth of water, the distance from the hose pipe to the water's edge, and you figure out how much uh, road to let out so that the anchor will just drag on the bottom and not dig in. You do not want the anchor to set. Just dig in, and that helps control your bow, and you can kind of steer the stern with power if you have some headway on um, and drive the ship kind of around the anchor and make your approach and that, that anchor dragging on the bottom will help keep your bow from being blown off um, until you can get in and get a line up. Um, I was captain of uh, one of the ships I was captain of in we were in Diego Garcia out in the Indian Ocean. Uh, it was a 950-foot military cargo ship and the lagoon was full of ships. My anchorage was right next to the channel that came in through the reef um, and the wind was blowing the opposite direction from the entrance. Um, so I was sitting there at anchor right inside the channel pointed 180 degrees from the direction I needed to go to get underway and out the channel. So the ship had massive bow thruster. So I figured piece of cake, get the anchor away, put the bow thruster hard to port, swing the ship around and just go. Well as we got about beam on to the wind, the turn stopped, essentially just stopped. And according to GPS, I was doing two knots sideways. Figured out later that it was because there was the super higher superstructure in the stern of the ship, wind blowing against that. And this was only 15, maybe 15 to 20 knots of wind. But the wind blowing against that balanced the force of the bow thruster pushing the bow to port and and it was just they, they those forces balanced out was blowing me sideways so i called the mate on the bow and told him you know drop the anchor need one shot at the water's edge hold it 
And he did that very quickly. And that got the ship under control, got the bow under control. Then I could give it on a head bell, left rudder, and just swing right around where the anchor was as I was actually dragging it along with me. And then when I got fair up in the channel, just pulled it up. Um, it's a really neat thing. They call it the poor man's tugboat. <laughs> and not a lot of people know about it. Not a lot of people use it, of course. But uh, uh, what I'm, one thing I found with a lot of merchant ships, especially, is very rare to anchor. It's not something you do every day. So people aren't used to, to doing that kind of thing. But it, it can really save you in, in, a, in a tight situation. Yeah. Now, in that situation where you were making that turn, realized you're going sideways two knots, had you accelerated, obviously on a bigger ship, you have to be very careful. You, you don't want to gain too much momentum or you can't stop it. Um, but that was not an option, right? That was not an option because I was right next to the channel. I mean, it was far too short a distance to turn the ship in. And the, um, the lagoon was so full of ships, I couldn't maneuver around to give myself room to turn. Um, so that was just not an option. Yeah, and in, here you tell the tale now, it, it almost sounds like a club hall, like, yeah, yeah. In, in a way. In a way. You know, your stern yeah. act like the, you know, like the main soul and, mm -hmm. and you just whipped you through the wind. So yeah. very, very neat. Uh, yeah, you were also describing how, you, well, uh, the teaching that you would do with different ships and then like the, the, the head on, the, the large ships and the Hudson River, I mean, it just sounds unreal. Absolutely unreal, but I'd love to share that with our audience and uh, yeah, how, how those ships pass. Well, it's actually in the Houston Ship Channel that you see this done a lot, and uh, the big tankers going into uh, the port there, the port of Houston, to load, uh, and it's very narrow channel. You, you, to look out there, when you're going in, it looks like, gosh, you got water as far as you can see, but it's very shallow, and they just dredge this channel through it, so the channel is fairly steep sides, narrow, and the bottom is just below, um, I don't know, maybe 60 feet, you know. If you get out of the channel, the depth of water is maybe six feet. So it gives you a very pronounced effect of as ships start to pass each other, the uh, forces, the ships forcing the water, the bow forcing the water apart, and when you get two ships coming opposite directions doing that, it can push your bow away from the other ship. The other force you have to be concerned with is the if your stern gets too close to the bank, you get um, um, suction, stern suction, we called it, that the, the water that's being drawn through from the propellers will suck the stern right over toward the bank. And then so you get the ship going crossways of the, of the channel. So the Houston pilots, uh, the way they get these monstrous ships past each other in that situation is they'll both be one going in opposite directions. They'll both be right in the center of the channel, coming right at each other head to head. Pilot on each ship has a walkie-talkie, and they're they're in constant communication with each other. When they get about maybe a little more than half a ship length apart, I mean, it just looks like there's going to be this massive collision. They'll communicate with each other put the rudder just a little bit to the right, and then the, the sh each ship will start to swing away. And then as they start to pass, as the bows start to pass, 
then they're going to get that bow cushion effect which would push the bow further away and you could easily get out of control if that's done so you have to immediately put the rudder over to, to the left both ships at the same time so you're bringing it back toward the other one but that ships that cushion in between the ships is is keeping them apart then you have to be careful that the stern suction as your two ships sterns are passing each other doesn't suck the sterns in you know together um, and it's just this like a like a dance coming through there uh, a lot of us call it the texas chicken <laughs> the pilots don't. They don't particularly like that term. Um, I was uh, chief mate on a ship in, that was going in there to load up f with stuff for the uh, first Gulf War. It wasn't a tanker, but it was a good-sized ship, 600 feet, something like that. And uh, there was a big one of these big tankers coming out. I was standing by on the bow, standing by the anchor, standard procedure with a couple of the crew. And... Um, watching this ship coming at us and we're just going right head to head with him and I knew about this maneuver I had taught it in the classroom and in in uh, simulators and stuff but still to stand there on the bow and see it and I was just about ready to tell my crew run aft <laughs> we're going to have a collision and then we saw the ship the, the bow start to turn the ships each ship start to turn a little bit and stand there and watch that coming past and I think he could have just about thrown a potato and hit the side of the other ship as you went past him. <laughs> wow, I mean, we always say it's all theory until you really do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now now obviously, you know, John and I, uh, so a lot of times with old shipmates, we're talking about boats that are in the you know, 60 to 160 foot range usually. Most of the tall ships I've been on are around there. Um, we're talking about much, much bigger vessels. So, so in this, that particular thing you're talking about, that doesn't necessarily translate to a yacht boat. Like you don't want to be going head on. You're not going to have a, a bow cushion push you off if you're on like a 20 footer or something. Or well, no, but those forces are still present, even if they're too small to the, for you to even notice them. Okay. I just could imagine every yachtsman going out there and be like, oh, I got this. And then like, crash. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't so you think do have you... to be careful. Uh, the principles are the same, but it's not always the same in execution. Or... Absolutely. And there aren't that many places where you would even be in those conditions with a, a steep bank uh, on each side of a narrow channel and fairly shallow water. Uh, that's, that's it. But yeah. we used to teach, teach this. There was a Navy school that I taught as I, while I was in the Navy Reserve. Um, and we had uh, radio-controlled models that were, oh, maybe about 18 inches long, something like that. And the controls were geared down so that, you know, when you turned the knob to turn the rudder, it wasn't instantaneous like an electric circuit would make it. It was, uh, there was a time delay built in, so it was more realistic like a real ship. You put the, the uh, helm over, the rudder is not instantly uh, over in that direction. The other thing they did was uh, built a narrow, out of plexiglass, a narrow channel across one end of this big pool where we had these radio-controlled ships to simulate the Houston Ship Channel. So you could put these little 18-inch, whatever they were, models in one in each end of this thing, and the guys controlling them would stand there and, and watch it, and you could perform that maneuver in that situation. So any size 
chip. You know, it, you, those forces can be present. Whether you could really use them or not in the case of a 20-foot, you know, pleasure boat, probably not. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was always surprised how, you know, like once you understand the theory behind everything, especially in sailing, like like you know, the bigger the boat, it, it does get more complex because you have one sail, you know, 11 sails versus one sail. Yeah, you need a crew, you need to manage the crew, but the actual basic principles are the same. And I'm always astounded how, yeah, even on the bigger boats, like the huge tankers and stuff, I, I kind of understand what's going on, how it translates over. Yeah, it's all the same thing. And, and I go back to, you know, my first days as, as a very young child playing around in a rowboat. And it acts just the same. A big ship's bigger, the, the time delays are different and everything, but it's really the same thing. And when I first really started thinking about that, I was chief mate on a ship that had uh, huge cargo cranes. This was another one of these military transports. Um, and we had a side ramp that we could lift with, a, with our cranes and rig it out on the side of the ship down to the dock so that vehicles could be driven on and off the ship that way. And uh, I was trained to do it, to pick this thing up, two cranes lifting one on each side of this big ramp. I think the ramp weighed something like 13 ton. And then you have to swing it in between the crane pedestals by maneuvering the cranes around and lower it over the side. And um, I, I was, you know, really nervous about it. And I was standing there, I was in the midst of this operation, and it finally occurred to me, listen, um, I'm picking up a big weight with big cranes. That's no different than picking up a light, a little weight with little cranes. So stop being nervous, we'll just very slowly and deliberately go through the operation and it works neat that's so neat <laughs> you worked with somebody is this correct you worked with somebody that was in it was a saipan we were talking about saipan but the lafayette golf or we were talking about that last night do you recall um Can't no i we were talking about the japanese coming in and attacking uh, the, the u.s ships just went and attacked him and they didn't oh, expect that? Oh, the Battle of uh, Leyte Gulf in the Philippines. When yeah, the I wasn't sure if you had known somebody that was there or had just read about it. No, I read about it. It's a great book called um, something about the Tin Can Sailors. Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. Tin cans is what in the Navy, were, that's what we always call destroyers, were tin cans. And... <laughs> and um, the ships there, well, the Japanese, this was their last, they were banking everything on being able to win this battle and keep us from getting back into the Philippines. Um, and so they, they had a decoy thing set up where they had all their carriers in one group up to the north. They had no planes at that time, no pilots, and but, but this, so this was a decoy. And they got on the radio, they were talking back and forth without being encoded or anything, just to, so that we would hear them. And Admiral Halsey had our carrier task group, uh, and he, he overheard them and figured out where they, about where they were, and he thought, wow, he can go and destroy them, because he thought they were the major threat to this landing. So he took off, they decoyed him way out in left field. Uh, meanwhile, the Japanese had two uh, major 
formations of battleships, cruisers, destroyers, one coming through the islands, through the Philippines, and one coming from around the southern end of the Philippines. And their idea was like a pincer uh, movement to trap our, our landing force. The only thing we had there, Navy-wise, were little 600-foot, 650-foot uh, aircraft carriers that ferried aircraft around different places in the Pacific. These ships were cranked out very quickly, no redundancy. They were just cranked out with the idea they probably would not survive the war. I think there were five of them there, and they had, planes would land to re, rearm with uh, bombs to support General MacArthur, whose forces had landed, and they were trying to make some headway on land. So these this Japanese two Japanese uh, fleets came steaming through, and when they were first detected, the these uh, little escort destroyers, well, that's what they were called, destroyer escorts, DEs, are smaller than a regular destroyer, not as much firepower, five-inch guns and, and some smaller guns. The uh, Commodore of that squadron saw, the, and the Japanese battleships are so distinctive with their, you know, like we always call, call it the P Pagoda Tower, the big um, um, uh, mast-like structure. And he just took off. He didn't say anything to anybody, didn't, there was no asking permission. He saw what was developing and just went straight at him. And all of his little destroyers, they followed, followed suit. They each picked a ship and tried to um, fire torpedoes, they, which they did. They did some damage to them. Uh, a lot of them were sunk, great loss of life. The pilots had to go back and land on these little carriers and rearm with torpedoes so that they could try to um, stop the ships that way, they stop the Japanese that way. Um, and they were marginally successful, but the thing was that our guys kept at it. I mean, it must have been like a swarm of hornets, you know, going after somebody and just wouldn't quit. And there was, uh, according to this book, there was one of the pilots of one of our torpedo planes he had launched all his torpedoes. He had nothing else but his service revolver, the 45. And he flipped his plane upside down, pulled the canopy open. And as he flew over this cruiser, he's reaching out with his, with his 45 pistol and shooting at the bridge. Uh, you know, I mean, he was just driving them nuts. And the uh, Japanese admiral became kind of disoriented and uh, he when he first saw these little carriers out there kind of in the mist I guess it was and still a ways away he mistook them for our major uh, carrier fleet which had the much bigger uh, attack carriers and he finally turned away and retreated and that was it I mean <laughs> you know we won it with such a small force uh, but of course, like I said, great loss of life. But it just shows what perseverance our guys had and just not giving up. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I remember reading a biography on John Paul Jones, and they talked about uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Like, John Paul Jones had died in uh, relative obscurity, I believe. Like, it was right during the midst of the French Revolution, and people were just interested in other things. Um, but his successful battle or battles uh, during the Revolutionary War 
uh, Teddy Roosevelt kind of my understanding of it is Teddy Roosevelt latched onto that and then and like that was the attitude the Navy needed so clearly that carried over uh, John Paul Jones of course is famous for the line I've not yet begun to fight yeah. and uh, in that battle he won I mean he took over the British ships but the ship he was actually on sank <laughs> like, like they were one or two shots away from, from getting wiped out completely and they kept fighting and they just wouldn't let go so very impressive um, and obviously works uh, at times but yeah so in your trap where have you traveled like in the military what are what are some of the interesting places you've seen or places that you that a normal civilian might not have been able to see oh wow uh, <laughs> I have to have to stop and think I mean all the obvious places Mediterranean area uh, in the Navy we used to deploy to the Mediterranean for a six-month uh, tour of duty and that was before satellites before computers well there were computers but not as we know them today there was no internet there was no email there was no texting um, but um, so that was quite a long time to be away from home but yeah, I'm getting off the subject <laughs> um, oh Spain France uh, Italy Greece um, were the main major places we went so it wasn't too out of the ordinary um, out in the Western Pacific uh, Japan, uh, the Philippines, um, and then at one point I was due for shore duty, and I sent in my duty preference card, and was making a case for how well suited my wife and I were for overseas shore duty. She had been an exchange student to Turkey in high school, uh, and her so-called Turkish sister had been to the States, and we were very close with with that family and had been back and forth a few times. So I was playing all this up about, you know. But of course I was thinking about, well, Europe, somewhere in Europe, shore duty, that would be wonderful. So I was at sea on a ship, on a Navy ship. I was uh, the operations officer and navigator on this ship. And we were sitting in the wardroom one day having lunch and the radio uh, messenger came and knocked on the door and stuck his head in and, and he said to me, he apologized for interrupting our lunch, but he said, sir, I think you might want to see this. Uh, so he handed me the, the teletype message that, that had come in and it was my orders to some place called Tehran. <laughs> well, at that time, nobody had ever heard of Tehran. I didn't know where it was. And I read it. It was the orders to the military uh, advisory group there. So I walked back to the table. And I folded up the piece of paper, put it in my shirt pocket, and sat down and was going to start eating. And everybody's like, well, well, what is it? And I said, oh, it's just my orders. Well, gee, where are you going? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> so they finally got out an atlas, and we found out where it was. We got into port a couple of days later in Naples, and I wanted to call my wife and tell her where we're going to this magical place called Tehran. Uh, the easiest way to make a phone call was to check into a hotel. Otherwise, you had to go to the telephone exchange and sit there, give them the number you wanted to call in the States, and sit there and wait till it went through, which could take a half hour, could take an hour, you never knew. The other option was check into a hotel and you could put it through the hotel switchboard and just stay in your room. That's a lot nicer. So I was able to get off the ship for the night and I did that. 
and uh, got my wife on the phone. I said, well, I have my orders. She said, oh, where are we going? And I said, well, sit down <laughs> and um, told her. And, she, you know, so that was nice. So we, uh, we did. We packed up our two children. Uh, our daughter was, I think, four, and our son was nine months old. And uh, we went to Tehran and lived there for two and a half years. And it was phenomenal. This was the early 70s. We uh, learned Farsi. She learned Farsi better than I did. Um, we traveled all over the country, either on, on our own or on tours. We hunted and fished and camped up in the mountains. Um, and the people were, were wonderful to us. It was, it was really enjoyable, especially out in the villages. It was a great, great experience. Very neat, wow. We were talking about the torpedoes that the U.S. used against the Japanese and how initially in the war they weren't working properly and they, they talked to the engineers and the engineers said, you must be using it wrong. And, and, the, and so we were saying how like engineers really need to make tests on equipment. And it turns out you actually worked on that. Uh, not those torpedoes, you're not that old. But, <laughs> but you did work on, you said, Tomahawk cruise missiles and some other testing in the military? Yes, I was uh, assigned to the op Navy's Operational Test and Evaluation Force in Norfolk. And what, what that outfit did was when a system was being developed, not necessarily a weapon system, it could have been anything, uh, was being developed by Naval Sea Systems Command, who's, that's what their responsibility was with a, with a contractor. The Naval Sea Systems Command was supposed to make sure the contractor was building something that would meet all the technical specifications, that would fly at, the, in this case, would fly at the proper altitude, the speed, the, you know, uh, all those kinds of things. What our job was, uh, after they had proven that the system met all those technical parameters, our job was to put it on a ship, turn it over to real sailors, uh, get all the technicians out of the picture completely and go out and operate with it and set up tests to prove that it was really going to work as it was designed to work. When it's out in the real world, uh, bouncing around on a ship and uh, in all kinds of weather, and that that type of thing. So you know that's that's what we did. Now we so I would be going to progress meetings with the prime contractors and these naval sea systems guys, and they're talking about being able to uh, figure it out a way to change the guidance system of the missile so it could do something different. And then I would brainstorm with some of my people, and we'd say, okay, well if you're going to do that, these are the kind of tests we want to do when it gets to operational testing to prove that it will actually do that at any time of the year in different seasons when there's snow on the ground, when there's no leaves on the trees, or uh, on a Sunday when there are no cars in the Kremlin parking lot, so to speak, because this was back during the Cold War. Um, so that was uh, you know, quite an interesting tour of duty. Yeah, it, it, so they did a lot of the testing. You were talking about San Clemente Island? And the Channel Islands out in, off California? Yeah, they, uh, uh, we had a, a, a system set up on the southern tip of San Clemente Island. It was called the Vulcan Phalanx system. It's uh, basically a Gatling gun, modern-day Gatling gun, radar-controlled, automatic system. Um, if, it, if you had it in automatic, it would pick up 
a, an incoming target, track it, open fire on it, uh, and a tremendous rate of fire, which I can't remember what it was now. It might even still be classified. But anyway, so... <laughs> um, but I saw a picture that had been done with that gun emplacement where a ship off the coast, they had fired one of their five-inch guns at that uh, Gatling gun emplacement. The gun acquired the incoming five-inch round, opened fire on it, and when they recovered the round out that was in the sand there after it uh, landed, and the picture showed clearly where that Vulcan Phalanx Gatling gun had hit the five-inch shell five times when it was coming in at it. I mean, it was just, just incredible. Of course, it was coming straight in. It wasn't crossing in front of them, which would have been harder to hit. But still, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, so, and in, in theory, obviously, a missile coming into a ship is it's not going to be at a sideways angle. Like, I'm sure those systems are designed to acquire at different angles. As in, as in, if a ship's like you know, it's coming broadside to, there'll be a system to you know hit that versus, like it can move, right? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, it can. But the problem it becomes if you have a a high bearing rate. So if the if the the um, thing's coming in at an angle, or maybe it's going, maybe it's aimed at another ship, ah. and it's passing you, and you're trying to hit it as it's whizzing past. One of the ways we tried to make sure that our anti-ship uh, weapons were not going to be susceptible to a system like this Vulcan Phalanx was to make it, when it got a certain distance to the target ship, it would break and go either right or left. You never knew which way a particular one was going to go. And it would circle the ship as it was coming closer to it. And, and hit it from the opposite direction, but it would maintain a very high bearing rate, which makes it very hard to, to hit. I mean, you think about duck hunting and, you know, hitting a flock of ducks that's flying crossways to you. Uh, same kind of problem. Okay. Yeah, those islands, uh, I, I've, we anchored off of San Clemente. I got to go uh, snorkeling there one time. That was the only time I saw a shark that could take a piece out of me. I believe it was a Mako shark. Thinking back on it, uh, that was that was neat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I'll bet. <laughs> but I was all by myself. I was like, "Oh, that's a big shark. <laughs> I might actually take a chunk." Um, but yeah, it was beautiful islands. Obviously, civilians can't set foot on San Clemente or San Nicolas. They're the two outermost of the, I believe, eight Channel Islands. Um, but the others, the others are neat. A lot of them are nature preserves. If you get a chance to go out there. Definitely do it. The snorkeling is world famous. Absolutely incredible. Uh, hopefully we'll have one of my old captains, Snark. I'd love to interview him. He's on Tolly Moore or some of my other Tolly Moore shipmates. But we would go all around those islands. The most famous is uh, Catalina Island. Everybody knows Catalina just off LA. Yeah, very neat area. Uh, yeah. What? Oh, so let's talk about tall ships. What got you into tall ships? What got you into historical vessels? A lot of our fans here. I'm assuming we're going to have fans. Uh, love that. I go back again to my childhood. And uh, my family, my great-grandfather was a sea captain uh, who then in his later years uh, settled down and became an oysterman, had an oyster boat. 
Um, I never knew him. He, he died long before I was born. My grandfather worked on the oyster boats. I never knew him either. He died the year I was born. Um, but we would sit around in the evening if we were visiting family members in the area, and they would get to talking about um, you know who, these people and who they were, what they did, and and various exploits and everything. So, I I was so young when I first remember that that I would get really bored, but I had to sit there politely, and I'd start dozing off to sleep and hearing these voices droning on. Finally, as I got a little bit older, I started listening a little more and absorbing more of it, and especially stories about the oyster boats um, under sail, dredging oysters, and um, and all the all the all the things that that they did. Um, and I was I grew up in that area. Uh, always wanted to be along the river where the oyster boats were under power at that time, but still beautiful shape boats, beautiful hulls, um, and I was just totally immersed in that, and so I got the, a crazy idea that I don't know when it start, started to develop in my, in my mind about how neat it would be to restore one of them to its original uh, sailing configuration. Um, in the mid-1980s, I had left the Navy, I had been going to sea, our two children were at that point uh, in high school, and I got an offer from Dorchester Shipyard to um, work for them, managing their government contracts. So I decided to do that and be home while the children were finishing high school. While I was there, I met a guy who was a clammer. He um, was building a new clam boat and he needed the clam license, which no new licenses were being issued because of conservation issues, but you could transfer a license from one boat to another. So he had bought one of the old oyster boats who had been converted to a clam boat, had the clam license, swapped the license off of it. Um, I think he's the one that stripped it of all the equipment, machinery and stuff, because this old boat was kind of sitting in the mud. It wasn't worth anything. He wasn't going to do anything with it, but he still technically owned it. And he would come into the shipyard with his other boats for repairs and, and uh, various things. And I got to know him, and I started asking him every time I saw him. I'd say, what, you know, what are you going to do with that old boat anyway? And because I knew it was kind of a liability for him to, to just have it. He was going to have to do something with it. And uh, finally one day we were walking along out in the yard and I said something about it and he stopped me and turned and looked me in the eye and he says, John, if you want that old boat so bad, it's yours for a dollar. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> what am I going to do now? I have no money to speak of. I mean, you know, we were doing all right, but I didn't have that kind of money. Didn't know how to go about putting together uh, any kind of thing to, to raise money, to get grant money, to, we weren't, we weren't even sure that we wanted to go as a nonprofit. We were thinking about doing a for-profit business, taking passengers and everything. But still, how do you raise the money to, to do the rebuild? Um, quite by accident, we met up, uh, my, a couple of friends who were helping me and I met up with a young woman who had been a tall ship sailor uh, around various places in the country 
heard us talking about it and got interested, um, very interested, and so she and I formed a nonprofit corporation, and I put the boat into it. And she was good at grant writing. She raised, started raising money. Uh, my wife and her started doing uh, planning and, and holding various fundraising events and stuff around the area. And uh, it just took off from there with a lot of volunteers, a lot of people helping with donating um, services and equipment and, and everything. We basically rebuilt the boat with volunteer labor. We had three shipwrights, three paid professional shipwrights. I think at times there was a fourth that joined them. Other than that, it was all volunteers that came down and worked with them um, and uh, totally rebuilt this boat. Coast Guard certified, now designated the New Jersey Historic Tall Ship. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it just, but that was a result of, of my upbringing from the earliest years of, uh, you know, hearing those stories, inheriting some of my great-grandfather's stuff, his sea chest, some of his charts and, and books and other things like that. Yeah, it's well, wonderful. I mean, you saved a piece of history. It's, I think, the only sailing oyster schooner in Delaware or uh, Delaware Bay, as far as I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can still see some of the old hulls you know, that are still in use on, on motorized uh, oyster schooners on the Morris River. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome, actually, when you go past some of them. You can also see some, some of the remains of some of the boats on the riverside where they just wash them up in the mud bank. And unfortunately, that's what ha- has happened to almost all of them. So thank you, John, for saving our boat. I mean, it's the boat we're on right now. <laughs> we're yeah. taking her across the seas. So pretty, pretty incredible. So at the Bayshore Center, which is the, the home of the A.J. Mirwald there in Morris or in uh, Bivalve in Port, near Port Norris, um, just north of Cape May, for those of you that know New Jersey. Uh, they also had a very, I forget, it's, it's like one of the oldest boats. Um, it may be one of the oldest, I don't know if it's an oyster boat or working boats, but it's like from the 1850s or 60s. And unfortunately, it is gone. I, I don't think it can be recovered I'm blanking on the name of it. Cashier. Uh, the Cashier, yes. And that was supposed to be restored as well. Um, they, they were going to have it out of water. and Obviously, that failed. But I remember we, we had some young students, and they were coming, and I was showing them the A.J. Mirwall, talking about the history, and I could kind of tell, you know, they were into it a little bit. And, and so I said, oh, guys, do you want to see you know, one of the oldest ships in all of uh, you know, America? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I brought him over and turned him around and said, there, in the mud. And it was, and, and there's just kind of this silence. And I said, I, I'm showing you this, and I know you're upset now, and I'm, you know, I apologize for that, but I just want to point out that we live in a wealthy country. There's a lot of money. People spend it on all sorts of things. And if more people would just spend a little bit and invest in organizations and invest in some of our history, we could keep it alive because it is very special. And like you said, I mean, you were inspired by your ancestors sailing. Um, and, and let's face it, I mean, almost everybody in this country came, came on a boat one way or another and often was involved with uh, maritime, uh, maritime industry either at home or, I mean, I say industry in quote, quotations, it's 
more like it's a part of life. I mean, even right now I'm reading the book uh, Blackjacks again, all about African-American sailors. And they're talking, yeah, back in Africa, like the Europeans were using local labor and they had great canoes. They could handle the surf, which the European vessels couldn't. And and so, you know, these very people coming to the the Americas, they they brought that heritage with them. So everybody in some way or another has been associated with boats. And it's very special. It certainly is. And, you know, looking back at the history of our country, it, it's, it was, we were a maritime nation. Um, the 13 original colonies, the roads were practically non-existent in a lot of cases. I mean, the, just the time it took a person to get from, oh, New York to Boston, for instance, was, it was a difficult journey. So getting produce, goods, and things back and forth from the place of manufacture or the place that stuff was grown to, to market was done by boats. Water and their rivers and the sea, that was the highways and the roads that were used. That's all the, that there were. So it's, it's a little disappointing to see that um, now we're more of a continental country with uh, all the roads and stuff. I mean, there are not many people that know much about the sea and about ships and about the fact that all those Toyota cars that everybody's driving came here on a ship. Um, so it's very special, very important, I feel, to do more of the types of things that the Mirwald is doing uh, to um, help people understand what shipping is all about, what our history is all about, what it was like back then, and the importance of it today. With, um, I mean, if shipping stopped, you know, the world would just go into a tailspin. So it's, uh, it's very important. Yeah, and we even saw that in microcosm with the, uh, the sh ship in Egypt that got wedged in the Suez Canal. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Yeah, I'm always amazed at how much meaning people can derive from history. Like it really, you know, our boats, I mean, I've seen people that had no direction in life, no plan. They were going down, a, if not a dark place, a place that was just pointless. And then they hop on a boat and all of a sudden, you know what, you got other people to take care of. You're just part of a small, you know, you're a small part of a bigger group and you don't know everything and you need to be humble and you need to learn and you need to work hard. And, and honestly, it gives people meaning. Uh, even that, like an old historic boat is enough to give a lot of people meaning. And uh, older folks that volunteer, you know, yeah, they're not young enough to scramble up the rigging anymore in a gale, but but they can still help tremendously and impart wisdom and knowledge and learn new skills. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, going back, you were talking about the roads being, or not the roads, sorry, the waterways being the highways and ships being the way to travel. Uh, a lot of, I can hear some skeptics, people, they're like, wow, oh, well, but when there's no wind, the boats don't go. So yes, it is true. Boats would have to wait for the weather and things did take longer before the steam engine was invented. However, do keep in mind, especially in colonial America, uh, your roads weren't paved. So when it rained, you're in the mud. And I don't know if you ever try to slog through mud uh, by yourself, it's very difficult. And you got an army, wagons, etc. I mean, things would get bogged down. 
So everybody had to wait for the weather. And in the case of ships, they can still sail in the rain. They can still sail in most conditions. Uh, you do need wind, but they were, they were very good at doing what they did. And certainly a lot, lot, lot more efficient than overland travel at that point in time. Yeah, really what I've been told, it wasn't really until steam engines that you had schedules, like proper schedules, you know, to the, to the minute, to the hour. Uh, you really, that wasn't really a thing. Yeah, there was some service uh, on ships that were built for speed, not so much for cargo carrying capacity, but for speed. And they would be on runs like to from, oh, I don't know, New York to Halifax, for instance, uh, on a, somewhat of a schedule. They were called packets because they, and they, they tried to maintain that schedule, but still it was not not accurate, it was not precise. It might be tomorrow instead of today that they would get to their destination. Now, what, what book are you reading now? You're reading one set during revolutionary times, right? Uh, yeah, I've been reading two books, but I think the one you're talking about was uh, about the uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts Regiment mm. of, whether well, it was considered, well, the, the people were, most of them were mariners um, they formed this regiment, so they were more like an army unit. But then a lot of them uh, went back to uh, being captains of, of ships that were uh, authorized to as privateers, under directly under George Washington's uh, authority. And some of the exploits that that regiment. Uh, was involved, were involved in. I mean, they're the ones that ferried Washington across the Delaware at the Battle of Trenton, for instance, and um, uh, things. So it's a very interesting, a lot of detail, a lot of historic detail that I had no idea, you know, about. Uh, like when the British were marching on um, Lexington and Concord, um, they were after the gunpowder. They were trying to confiscate all the gunpowder they could so that the Patriots had nothing to fight back with and, and figuring that, you know, well, that'll just squelch the, the revolt completely and, you know, we can beat them into submission. And that, that didn't work out too well for them. But uh, this Marblehead Regiment, they, they were able to actually contact their trading partners in Portugal that they had been doing business with for years and, and trading back and forth with. And they had such a good close relationship with them that they were able to get that trading partner to ship gunpowder to the colonies um, and in massive quantities for back then. So it was a very important part of, you know, being able to carry on the war. Yeah, from the sounds of it, I mean, just all the battles and everything you just described, that is the reason we won the Revolutionary War. Without success in those uh, battles, we would have lost. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, neat. Well, so what is, tell me about one of the neatest things you've ever seen out at sea. Just something where it just captivated you. Well, there have been a number of things, uh, like St. Elmo's fire is, a, is really a, a weird-looking phenomenon. It's, you know, where either you're, uh, in the old days of sailing ships, the yard arms and stuff would actually be glowing in this 
and it's light and didn't hurt you. It wouldn't electrocute you. But, of course, sailors were sort of and maybe still are a bit superstitious. And um, so all kinds of stories crept up about that. But I saw it one time on a ship that I was on, on a Navy ship that I was on, up in the Baltic Sea. And a front came through and thunderstorms and, you know, just some wild weather for a short period of time. And then the antennas up on the forward gun mount just started glowing in this <laughs> light. It was quite impressive. But I think one of the, one of the really big things that I saw uh, was probably the last time I was coming out of um, the Persian Gulf, out through the Straits, um, and there's a lot of mixing of the water that occurs there as you're coming out into the Arabian Sea, which is basically part of the Indian Ocean, um, that, that swirls around. And it was night, and all of a sudden the water, the phosphorescence in the water, it would light up. There would be like a big floodlight underwater is what it almost looked like. And it would just appear and get brighter and then get dimmer and then go away. And these, this was going on all around the ship and off as far as you could see in every direction. When there was one close enough to the ship, it was bright enough to cast shadows you know, of, of people on deck. And it was just that water swirling around there with all the uh, microorganisms and, and stuff in it and generating this phosphorescence that was, I never saw anything on that massive a scale like that before or, or since. Amazing. Yeah, we're talking about superstition. I, uh, sailors, uh, I, I think, well, I, I think superstition's bad luck, but that's just, that's just me. But yeah, I know sailors, there's everything. Like you can't leave on a Friday. You're not supposed to have bananas, I think it is. Like there, there's just I never heard that so one. So many superstitions. I don't know. We always knock on wood. I still do that one. Yeah, we'll knock on wood for good luck. But um, one, though, I was told, uh, I remember when I first started out on boats, and, and I was told by a boater, so he's like, don't whistle. And, oh, yeah. and I, I love whistling. Like, like I whistle, if I'm not thinking, you know, I'm really happy, I'll just sometimes start whistling. Won't even realize I'm doing it. And so, of course, you know, I was whistling, I was really happy. And then this guy who, he and I didn't get along anyway, and he's telling me not to whistle because bad luck. And I'm like, mm, well, now I'm not happy anymore. And so, so then I try to explain to him, I'm like, look, like we've had really good weather this whole time, and I whistle every day. Like, come on. You know, it's like, no, it's bad luck. And so I just got mad. So I started angry whistling. You know, it's, it's hard to whistle when you're angry, but but boy, I was doing it. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm whistling up, I'm, what was it? I'm whistling up a squall. And we're on the West Coast, we're in, we're in San Francisco. It's like squalls usually don't happen. Well, we went out that day and sure enough, like a, a you know, squall came through like, like like some bad weather. And and so the, the and so I said, I told you, I told you so. So the next day I started, you know, I was whistling, I was happy again. I got told, don't whistle. So I was really angry. So I said, what are you whistling? So I'm whistling a hailstorm. I'm just, I'm tired of this. I'm going to whistle a hailstorm. And sure enough, we went out, we had kids on board, and then it started hailing. And like we had to take the kids below decks, and we had to race up aloft. And I don't, if you ever furled sail when it's, when it's hailing, like your hands, I mean, it's like getting hit by ice balls. So your hands start to, 
you know, get, get really tight and you can't feel them. You're just kind of working, not, not knowing if you're even gripping anything. Very, very unnerving as you're climbing down. But, but yeah, so we sold up a hailstorm and they still weren't quite getting it. You know, but people are starting to look at each other a little bit. But, but then the next day, I didn't even wait. I just woke up and was angry whistling and, and the, the, you know, the guy came over again and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm whistling up a thunderstorm. And sure enough, that day, a freak thunderstorm came through, which is very rare on the West Coast. And that evening, the captain sat us all down, you know, the muster, and the captain said, Yes, whistling is bad luck. Only cooks are allowed to whistle. Uh, the reason for that is supposedly if the cook is whistling, uh, they're not eating your food, which some smart cook came up with that one. So the captain said, yes, the cook's allowed to whistle and Johan's allowed to whistle. <laughs> yeah, that was, I've read that a lot. I, I have a collection of books that were written by uh, people who went to sea back in the age of sail. And they had very international crews, you know, people from, guys from all over different parts of the world. And it specifically talked about people from Finland. And there were a lot of Finnish sailors. They were good seamen, and uh, they were, um, you know, the captains, the shipping owners liked having them in the crew. But somehow they got this reputation that you had to be really nice to them or they could whistle up a wind <laughs> uh, or, or something worse. Uh, the thought was that they were wizards um, and everything, and of, of course, uh, their complexion kind of leads to that or can foster that, that kind of feeling. They're very um, kind of gaunt-faced, you know, on average um, uh, people and very distinctive looking. We, I knew of a family that um, the, the guy's wife was from Finland and they would go back there every summer uh, for a visit. But uh, she was just striking uh, in this, her facial features and complexion and everything. But she was telling us one time that she was playing, she agreed to play the witch in, um, for Halloween, at a, at a Halloween, you know, and it was out in the woods and they had this trail where the children could follow around and they had different things. And she was a witch sitting at one of the stations out in the woods. And she said to me, she said, you know, I wouldn't even have to wear a costume to do that. <laughs> but uh, and, and she wasn't ugly. She wasn't ugly. She was very beautiful, I thought. Uh, but then she told me that she was in the um, supermarket one time, and she was in line, you know, putting her stuff out on the on, on the counter to be rung up. And a woman came with her cart up behind her, with a young child in the cart, and saw um, this this. Finnish woman and started screaming and pointing. He said, Mommy, Mommy, it's the witch, it's the witch. She said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was uh, some of those superstitions were really interesting. And some of them were actually, I think, started to just instead of telling somebody this is the way to do it, you told them, convinced them it was bad luck to do it any other way. One of the things I heard about doing was in, in uh, boat yards, if you're caulking the bottom of a wooden vessel, they said you always start at the starboard bow and work down to the stern and then come up the port side from stern to the bow. 
and it was bad luck to do it any other way. And I've done some of that kind of work on boats that I've had, well, on Mirwald back in the real old days, and, uh, and another oyster boat that I had. And as I was walking along with the caulk and iron and the mallet and the, driving the cotton in, it occurred to me then that for a right-handed person, which, let's face it, it's most people are, working along where you're backing up, going along the seam, just let, and holding the caulk and iron in your left hand and the mallet in your right hand, it makes more sense. You don't want to be going the other way, the opposite direction. It just, you know, the, it, doesn't, it doesn't work as well. And so the um, young apprentices were told that by the old masters, that it's bad luck to, to go the other way. Wow, there you go. Yeah, more discrimination against lefties. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a lefty. Apparently, there's like a lot of left uh, handed captains. Apparently, we're a higher percentage than the average in the population. I have no idea why. Hmm. But uh, that, yeah, that's, it, well, even going back to the whistling, like a whistle could be mistook for a bosun's whistle or a bosun call if somebody was good enough. Ooh. And yeah, you don't want to trigger in a military vessel, have. 500 guys jump around and start doing stuff <laughs> based off a whistle. But yeah, try to tell somebody that logically uh, in the 18th century or even to, yeah, it's just easier to say, oh, it's bad luck. And then actually, if you do that, then now you got the whole crew on your side. So anybody that to gets out of line, like, oh boy, they're in trouble. That's you do right. not want to bring bad luck on a sick ship. Yeah. 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 So that's simple psychology, but works well. Oh, it's been used throughout history, not just on ships and, and stuff. So. Yeah, I'm always amazed at how much of, of that simple psychology uh, has been used historically. Like, like I think I feel like a lot of people today are just in any contemporary time. They think that, oh, we're, we're so smart. We're the first ones to do this, yada, yada. And it's just like, it's actually not true. I mean, take away the telecommunications. Uh, but even them. People get manipulated by very simple tricks that just like they have since for thousands of years, you know, it just happens to be done with a different type of technology. Um, oh, the guys promise you something that's a little too good to be true. And guess what? You sucker. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think of good examples. Yeah. But even like the tattoos, like things to just identify the group. You know, even mm -hmm. the way of talking. I actually plan on doing an episode where we'll we'll talk about how to identify a, a, an old-fashioned sailor, like a tall ship sailor, or a, a sailor from the age of sail. And yeah, it was it was like there's a way of talking, and and I always thought it was. You know, I got into boats through the Patrick O'Brien novels, and I always thought it was exaggerated in those novels when the sailors would go on land and still use the sailor vocabulary. I thought, that is silly. They didn't do that. That's not true. You know, like, okay, Patrick O'Brien, whatever. Uh, I was wrong. Yeah. I was 100% wrong. Yeah, like, in real life, I can tell you, anecdotally, uh, our tall ship sailors, we, we'd use the vocabulary on the boat, and then you get on land, and we'd use it even more. <laughs> like, yeah. just, just to make a point, just like, we're different, and you instantly know, you know, if you're not part of that group, and so, yeah, we're referring to things as ports and starboard. Oh, I'm using the shorehead and I'm doing this and that. And yeah, it was astounding to see how that, that culture would carry over even onto land. That's, that's very true. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see people that really don't know that vocabulary um, that uh, buy a boat and want to try to sound salty 
and they get it all fouled <laughs> up. They're just, you know, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, fouled up, which is a sailor's term. Like, it's, it's funny how many uh, sailor's terms actually still to this day carry over. Oh, yeah. And was, are used by landsmen, and they got no clue at I was, all. I was taken aback by that. There's another one. <laughs> yep. Right? Can't fathom it at yeah, all. Yeah, <laughs> Very neat. All right, John. Well, uh, I feel like we should wrap up, but is there anything you want to say? Any final thoughts? Oh, gee, I <laughs> I don't well, tell us about Maine. My goodness, we're headed to Maine. Oh. Uh, you know, that'd be a good way to wrap it up. Let's let's talk about where we're headed, the beautiful state of Maine. And folks, it's miserable. It's rainy, or no, it's, it's snow. Yeah, snow no, all year long. Nobody would want to live there. Don't, don't live no, there. No, you no, can no, visit. No. You know, maybe visit. Come in up the and come up and visit don't in the move. summer and spend all your money and <laughs> and then go home. Okay, there you go. Uh, yeah. I I had was had been interested in Maine or the whole thoughts of New England. I you know born and raised in Southern New Jersey, but re- read a lot of sea stories. That's about all I ever read when I was growing up, and a lot of it took place in New England. And I was always impressed with the New England frugality, the independence, the the uh, uh, independence, the the feeling that you you did everything for yourself and you could get by you could you know just have that uh, ability to to survive in rough conditions bitter cold weather lots of snow and, and everything so um, when I was still in the Navy I was sent to a six-month school six and a half month school something like that in Newport Rhode Island uh, and after that, I was that's to qualify you to be a department head on a Navy ship. So I knew I was going to a ship back in Norfolk. That's where the family was. So I didn't want to move everything for six months. So the family stayed there. I went to Newport. And I got to thinking more and more about Maine. Um, picked up a Sunday paper one, one Sunday and uh, started looking. They had um, advertisements for real estate in Maine. Found this one uh, outfit called Down East Acreage. Uh, Down East is another interesting nautical term. We maybe get back to that later. Don't let me forget. Um, and I, anyway, I called them, uh, scheduled a time to drive to Maine the next weekend from Rhode Island, and looked at land. Found a piece of land that I really liked, 200 acres of woodland. Got back to Newport, called my wife, and I said, "Well, guess what I did today." Um, now, I didn't buy it. She came up. We looked at it. This was a two-way thing. This was a partnership. Um, and we, we did end up buying it. So we would take the children camping in the summertime, you know, and every time we went up to Maine for anything, it was more and more difficult to leave and go back home. Um, I was going to see Merchant Marine. Could live anywhere in the world I wanted to. So we decided, well, you know, why not buy a house up here and spend more time? And we did. We gradually became full-time residents of Maine. We're not Mainers, unfortunately. Uh, It takes like 10 generations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I had a guy that I, well, his whole family became very close friends with he and almost helped raise his uh, two little boys. And that was just great. And we were sitting around the house one night and he was talking and I forget how it came up but he said now one thing don't I don't want you to ever embarrass yourself 
when you're out, you know, talking to people or out in public, he said, but you just have to always remember, um, you're not from Maine. You're never going to be from Maine. And he said, he backed off and he said, no, John, we love you dearly. And you're a great friend. But you're not from Maine. You know, I took that in a good way. Uh, it is something that people are very proud of their heritage in Maine. And to come in and act like you were from there is kind of insulting to or could be, you know, taken the wrong way by local people. So it was kind of a friendly caution thing that helped me learn how to fit in. And my main, my biggest goal was to try to fit in with the local people, with understand local culture and ways of doing things, and that way you were accepted by people that, and some of our greatest friends in the world have been, you know, farmers and folks that live near us in, in Maine. Um, been a very very gratifying experience from that aspect so it's uh, but when I when we first went up I first took my wife up there when after we bought the land and I was talking about buying a house and I, I was trying to tell her I said you know you know coastal Maine because of the influence of the of the sea the winters are not are a little more mild than they are inland they don't really get that much snow along the coast most of the snow is inland and as she was looking at all these farmhouses as we're driving through the country where all the barns are attached to the house, she says, well, if they don't get much snow, why is that? Why are the barns attached right to the house? And, of course, I tried to tell her it's, it's just, a, uh, just a custom, just a tradition. There's no, really, no real reason for it. You know, It's just a style. Well, she wasn't buying it. And, mm -hmm. yes, we do get a lot of snow. <laughs> <laughs> but we love we love it, and and to us now it's difficult going south, even to South Jersey in the summertime because it's so hot, mm. and we're not used to it. All right, well, John, I I, I want to end on those stories and that those words of wisdom, except you mentioned down east, so we got to know what's yeah. down east. <laughs> Good. Well, if you look at a map or a chart of uh, the coast of Maine, if you're going from uh, like Portland, Maine to Eastport, which is on the Canadian border, it's the most eastern city in the U.S. actually, You're, the course that you would steer is roughly um, east-northeast. So you're going more east than you are north. So they said they were sailing, these are the old schooners, the cargo schooners that worked along the, the coast of Maine. So that they were going east the prevailing wind in the summertime was from the southwest. So they were sailing pretty much with the wind most of the time. In other words, downwind and going east. So the term down east came up. The down east is a direction. You know, well, I'm going down east. It means you're, you're headed along the coast uh, going in that direction. It's also a region of Maine. Once you get from about Penobscot Bay to the Canadian border, that's down east Maine. Um, and it, it all, again, goes back to the sea. Yeah. Yeah, you were mentioning something interesting, which, which I actually didn't know how... Uh, so for, for a lot of yachtsmen, tall ship sailors out there, uh, professional mariners, they know, of course, the expression, uh, the old one, uh, red right returning. So in the region of the United States and a few other regions in the world, um, not Europe, um, when you return to port, 
you have the red buoys on the right hand side and the green buoys on the left. So we say red right returning. And then if you're leaving, uh, picture Scooby-Doo, I say red ref leaving. Uh, I made that up, that's copyrighted. So if you use that, you gotta pay me like five bucks every time you use it, just so you know. But yeah, so when, when leaving, you say red right returning, except you were describing how in Maine and of course other parts of the country, uh, sometimes you will have, you know, let's say you have an island and it, there's a gap in between, between the island and the mainland and you have two channels going up either side of that island. Um, yeah, so you have red right returning, that makes sense. But then the, the, the crossover, like say between the island and the land. So, so I'm picturing like, you know, you go up a channel, uh, say from south to north, you got the island on the left hand side, red right returning in the channel, then you hang a left, but, but technically, that channel could go either way. And you were saying there's an actual route around the US that that kind of covers those in-between areas um, when it could be confused what's going in and what's going out because there's no actual in and out. I, I hope that makes sense, folks. I, apologies if it doesn't, but uh, maybe we'll have a map or a drawing of it at some point um, on the podcast. That's the, yeah, what we're talking about is, is called, it's called a th uh, thoroughfare. And that's a channel that goes, uh, like you said, between if you have a big island that's just a little bit offshore and there's a channel that goes uh, around the island and connects the bodies of water on each side of that island, that's a thing you're not returning and you're not leaving. You're just going from, you know, like one bay over to another through this connecting channel. That's, that's a thoroughfare. And the rules for uh, the buoyage on a thoroughfare is that if you picture the United States, if you're going from the Canadian border down the east coast of the United States, in a thoroughfare, that's considered returning to port. That's red right returning. And that whole thing continues if you're across the Gulf of Mexico and up the west coast. So it's a clockwise direction. If you're in a thoroughfare, and you're going in that direction, the red will be on your right. So you may be coming down a bay that's a normal red right returning waterway. You're, you're coming down the bay headed towards sea. You're departing. So now red's going to be on your left and green, green's on your right. Then you make a turn into one of these thoroughfares and instantly you're back to where the first buoy you see is a red buoy you've got to keep that on your right hand side so you just have to keep track of where you are and where that where where that changes yeah but but hearing that 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 helped me a lot it's like okay now i'll be confused as to why that is and you know there's a rule for it so less likely to get lost which is always important or less yeah, likely to go on the wrong side of the buoy and which is even more important <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah we do not want to make that mistake right all right john well thank you very much thank you for your time uh folks thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it uh feel free to check out my my kids book that i wrote the greatest captain in the world it's not about me uh, and then also a sequel the greatest captain in the world too you can find that on our website greatestcaptain.com and also eventually we'll have a or a Patreon 
so a way that folks can support us as a, and be patrons for this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, John, once again, for giving us all this time and this knowledge and some great stories. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to have you back sometime. I'd love to. This has been fun. I always, I just enjoy telling stories and I can bore you to death all night long. Well, John, I mean, it's been great sailing with you and it has definitely not been boring. I absolutely love it. All right, folks, take care. Fairwinds following seas. Bye.